Welcome to the Relevant Truth Podcast. My name is Roger Mason. This podcast is dedicated to examining biblical truth. The Bible is overflowing with relevant truth useful in our everyday lives. Thus the title, Relevant Truth. The Bible was relevant to those that first heard it through the apostles and prophets. It is also timeless truth, which means it is relevant for us today in the 21st century. It is my hope that through this podcast, you will be both encouraged and challenged as we look at the Bible together. In today's podcast, we want to look at the subject of doubt taken from Genesis 3. The big idea here is that Satan attempts to create doubt in the Christian in order to destroy their faith. So let's look at Genesis 3 verses 1 to 11. Of course, you'll recognize this chapter as the chapter that talks about the temptation and fall of man. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? After World War II in Germany, the Allied forces found a message from a Holocaust victim scratched below a Star of David on a wall in a basement. This is what it read. I believe in the sun even when it does not shine. I believe in love even when it is not shown. I believe in God even when he does not speak. This person truly demonstrated faith in the worst of times when he could have doubted God. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about doubt. If we look at this passage closely, we see that Satan attempted to create doubt in Adam and Eve. As a result of the doubt he created in the minds of Adam and Eve, they fell into sin. In Genesis 3, we have a record of mankind falling into sin. There are three different types of doubts that Satan used. The big idea presented here in Genesis 3 is that Satan uses doubt to undermine the faith of the Christian. So let's look at three common doubts that Satan uses to undermine the faith of a believer. The first one is this, found in Genesis verses 1 to 4. 
doubting God's word. So let's read Genesis 1 to 4 again, but I want to read it from the New Living Translation. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord had made. Really? He asked the woman. Did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit of the garden? Of course we may eat of it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree in the center of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God says we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. You won't die, the serpent hissed. If we check back in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God told Adam that he could freely eat from any tree of the garden except one. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God put a boundary around one tree and explained the consequences of violating that boundary. You are surely doomed to die. That's the NASB. As we look at the conversation between the serpent and Eve, it appears that Satan was familiar with this boundary that God had placed on Adam and Eve. Notice in Genesis 3 and verse 4 that Satan blatantly contradicts the word of God and the penalty of death. You won't die. That's a New Living Translation. The NASB says it this way, you certainly will not die. God clearly stated to Adam that the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit in Genesis 2 and verse 17 was that you shall surely die. This is no deep revelation that Satan contradicts what God says. We expect Satan to do this because Satan is a liar. And the Bible says that he is the father of lies. Notice that Satan attempted to take Eve's attention away from the consequences of sin. He instead highlights the benefits and the pleasure of sin. Notice also that Satan made Eve feel that she was being denied something by God. Satan attempts to get Eve to doubt that God would fulfill his word. Genesis 3 and verse 4. In other words, Satan is saying, God is not really going to kill you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat from this tree, you will be like him. God really didn't mean what he said. Satan comes to you during a difficult period in your life, always during a difficult period or trial that you face. And he says to us during that period of time, God is not going to do what he says. Peter tells us that in the last days, scoffers will say, Jesus promised to come again. Where is he? 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Let's read it. First, I want to remind you that in the last days, there will be scoffers who will laugh at the truth and do every evil thing they desire. This will be their argument. Jesus promised to come back. Did he? Then where is he? Why, as far back as anyone can remember, Everything has remained exactly the same since the world was first created. That's from the New Living Translation. Let's look at some biblical examples of delayed promises. First, we have Abraham. God promised Abraham a son more than once. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18. Abraham was told that from him would come a nation of people. 
the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. Years went by, but Abraham and Sarah had no children. But Abraham and Sarah were getting older. God confirmed again his promise in Genesis chapter 15. He reconfirmed his promise that they would have a son. Look at Abraham's reply. O sovereign Lord, what good are all these blessings when I don't even have a son? Since I don't have a son, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. If you read on in that chapter, chapter 15, you'll see that God clearly said, no, you will have a son that will come from your own body. Abraham even attempted to fill God's promise his own way with an Ishmael. If you look in Genesis chapter 16, you'll see that this was Sarah's idea, that they could have a son through her servant. And so Abraham and Sarah sought this plan. Time went by for Abraham and Sarah. They were well beyond childbearing years. Even though Abraham is portrayed as a man of faith in the New Testament, we know that he struggled with doubt. At times, it must have looked like God wasn't going to fulfill his promise. From Abraham's perspective, having a son at this time in his life was impossible because they were beyond childbearing years. Abraham heard the words, God's not going to do what he said. All Abraham had to cling to was God's promise. Abraham's faith won out in the end. Let's look at a second example. God gave Joseph a dream about his future destiny in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph's brothers were already jealous of Joseph because he was Jacob's favorite son. Joseph's tunic of many colors, Genesis 37 and verse 3, was like a neon sign indicating Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. Joseph had a dream. The interpretation of Joseph's dream was obvious to everyone. Look at Genesis 37 and verse 8. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have domination over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph had a dream and then came the death of that dream. Look at what happened to Joseph after this. This rivalry between Joseph and his brothers got much worse. Joseph's brothers planned to kill him. Instead, he was sold into slavery and was taken to Egypt as a slave. He became a slave in an Egyptian household. He was falsely accused of rape and ended up in prison. Years passed. It looked like God wasn't going to fulfill Joseph's dream. His dream was truly dead. Joseph heard the words, God is not going to do what he said. But Joseph's faith won out in the end. Satan attempts to get us to doubt God's word. This is a very key strategy of his. Let's look at a second doubt that's found in Genesis chapter 3. Doubting God's goodness, found in verse 1 and in verse 5. Now the serpent said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That was a question. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
The second thing Satan tries to get us to doubt is God's goodness. Remember this, God is a good God, the devil is a bad devil. This is good theology. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this. Satan will have us in his grasp every time if he can convince us that God is not good. This is a major complaint that the world has about God. If God is so good, why is the world full of suffering, sorrow, disease, and disaster? The world questions God's goodness. When tragedy comes, we almost instinctively cry out, Why have you done this to me, God? It is so easy to blame God for all the bad things that happen to us. God is not responsible for all the troubles and disasters on the planet. Could it be that we are blaming the wrong person? Look at Job. It was not God who troubled Job. It was Satan. It was Satan who was responsible for sending the robbers to steal Job's livestock, killing Job's servants, causing lightning to burn up Job's sheep, sending a violent storm and killing Job's children, infecting Job's body with sores, and taking everything precious to Job and leaving him in absolute poverty. In addition to this, Job's wife advised him to curse God and die, and Job's three friends accused him of being a secret sinner, which caused all of this to happen in the first place. Job chapter 1 tells us that Satan was responsible for all that happened to Job. Why is it that all natural disasters are blamed on God? They call a natural disaster like a tornado or a hurricane an act of God. God gets blamed for a lot of the evil that occurs in this world. Does God cause a busload of school children to be killed tragically? Or was it road conditions? Or was it human error? Does God plant cancer and cause the death of a young woman leaving her husband and children behind? Does God cause a tornado to rip through a city killing innocent people and leaving hundreds homeless? Why is it that God gets blamed for all the evil in the world? We hear the accusation, God is all-powerful. Why doesn't he control the devil? Why doesn't he stop evil? Why doesn't God stop evil, sin, and suffering in this world? God is not responsible for the evil and the suffering. These things were introduced to the world when man sinned against God in the garden. The world questions God's goodness. The whole issue of evil in the world is a topic too big for us to deal with here and now. The short answer is that we need to believe that God is good, and we need to trust Him when trials, tribulations, and evil confront us in life. Satan definitely gets a lot of mileage out of questioning the goodness of God. Remember, God is a good God, the devil is a bad devil. We see this in the garden from the very beginning. John 10.10 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. John 10.10 10, from the New Living Translation. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. 
a major part of Satan's temptation in Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5 was to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. Notice that Satan was causing doubt on God's good character and suggesting that God was holding back something from them and denying them something good. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's Genesis 3 and verse 1. Satan's question was designed to cast doubt upon God's good character. Do you really mean to say that God has said you can't eat from all the trees? He implants the idea that God is unduly strict and is not permitting them to eat from all the trees of the garden. You should be able to eat from every tree. Satan's implication is that God's motive behind not eating the fruit was completely selfish and self-seeking. There is something God is hiding from you. There is something he is not telling you. Satan was attacking and misrepresenting God's good character. If Satan can convince us that God isn't good, then we become vulnerable to him. If Christians fail to believe in the goodness of God, then our entire belief system and our relationship with God will begin to dissolve. The presence of evil, sin, and suffering in the world makes it difficult for many of us to accept God's goodness. The bitter person says, If God is so good, why did he allow my uncle to sexually abuse me? Or, If God is so good, why did my mother die in a car accident? Or, If God is so good, why did my six-year-old child die of cancer? A lot of the anger and rebellion against God stems from the lack of confidence in God's goodness. Angry, rebellious, and hurting people need a good God to heal them. This is why we are here, to move amongst the hurting people of this world with the good news of a good God. Satan attempted to convince Eve that God did not have her best interest at heart, keeping the fruit of one tree from her. Notice Satan focuses in on the restriction, you shall not eat. Satan used this to blind Eve to God's goodness. To summarize, Satan attempts to convince Adam and Eve to doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness. So the third thing that Satan tries to get us to doubt is God's acceptance. The opportune time to present this doubt is after we've sinned. Satan has no rules or no scruples that he uses. Satan will strenuously persuade us to sin. And then once we do sin, he accuses us of wrongdoing. God won't accept you. God doesn't love you. Look at what you've done. God longs to have a relationship with us. And that longing doesn't cease when we sin against him. Our relationship with God is like any human relationship. Human relationships can go through many different cycles. Our relationship can grow and be cultivated. Our relationship can go through difficulties and be tested when differences arise. Relationships are deserted, abandoned, forsaken, and broken. Sometimes after these difficulties arise and there doesn't seem to be any kind of resolve that comes from it, and that seems to be the result, relationships 
can be repaired, mended, and reconciled. Hopefully this is what we do when we run into difficulties. Instead of abandoning or forsaking the relationship, we uh, attempt to repair it, to be reconciled. And as a result of that, if, if we do that, if the relationship is repaired and reconciled, then the last stage would be that the relationship develops, advances, and matures. Unfortunately, many relationships are halted in mid-cycle. We cultivate and we grow a relationship, we encounter difficulties, and then we forsake and abandon that relationship, and that's where it ends. Unfortunately, this is devastating when it happens in a family, in a marital relationship, but also it happens in friendship relationships as well. That in mid-cycle, we abandon the relationship and forsake it or desert it. It remains broken and unhealed and unreconciled. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about that. It talks about the need for reconciliation. And I believe for the believer, we are obligated by the Word of God to reconcile broken relationships with others. In Genesis 3, it records the account of the temptation and fall of mankind into sin. It starts by listening to the slanders against God, Genesis 3 and verse 1. Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? That's a question. That's Genesis 3 verse 1 from the NASB. Doubting God's Word, Genesis 3, verses 1, 4, and 5. You won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat it. You will become like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. That's Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5 from the New Living Translation. Thirdly, there's looking at what God had forbidden. Genesis 3 and verse 6. This is from the New Living Translation. The woman was convinced the fruit looked so fresh and delicious it would make her so wise. Fourthly, lusting after what God had prohibited. Genesis 3 verse 6 from the New Living Translation. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious it would make her so wise. And then lastly, disobeying what God had commanded, Genesis 3, verse 6, from the New Living Translation. So she ate some of the fruit she also gave to her husband, who was with her, then he ate it too. And then Satan appeals to Eve through legitimate natural appetites. He appealed to her physically. It was good for food. He appealed to her emotionally. It was a delight to the eyes. And he appeals to her intellectually to make one wise. Both Adam and Eve had a keen sense of guilt immediately following their sin. And their intimate relationship with God, of course, was broken. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. This was the first time that they had experienced sin and a broken relationship that resulted from sin. What did Adam and Eve do? Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 and verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Genesis 3 and verse 8, 
And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So what did they do? They covered themselves and they hid themselves from God. This is often the response that we have when we sin. We cover our sin and we run and hide from God. What should we do? Deal with our sin immediately before we do anything else. Secondly, confess our sin. Don't cover it up. Instead, we expose it to the light. Thirdly, forsake and turn from your sin or repent. Fourthly, seek God. Don't run from him. Seek his forgiveness. We restore our relationship with God by dealing with sin in this way. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had a perfect, open, and shameless fellowship with God. Now, after they had sinned, they had a dreadful fear of God, and they ran and they hid. They heard the sound or voice of the Lord in the garden, and they actively hid themselves from his presence. God was seeking them. It says in Genesis 3 and verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So you have a huge fight with your wife. There's misunderstanding, there's hurt, there's accusation, there's disagreement. Does your husband disown you? Telling you that the marriage is through? Of course not. When you have a fight with your children, do you disown them? Of course not. As a Christian, we must seek to restore uh, our relationship, to bring reconciliation to the relationship. Those divisive issues that arise in a relationship need resolve. And as a Christian, we're obligated to bring resolve to those issues that arise in our relationships with others, our wife, our children, or even our friends. Why should it be any different with our relationship with God? When we sin against God, we need to immediately seek to repair and restore that relationship. God seeks us. He wants a relationship with us. And he wants to be reconciled and restored in his relationship with us. When we sin, we need to immediately seek to restore that relationship. But what do we do? We run and we hide. We cover our sin like God doesn't see us. The Bible tells us how to deal with sin. It tells us that we need to confess it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We often don't take these steps to restore our relationship with God. Why? Because we doubt that God will accept us or receive us back. We doubt God's acceptance because people often have a conditional acceptance of others. But God is not like people. People accept others based on similar interests, social and economic background, ethnicity, philosophical and religious beliefs. Based on that criteria, people accept other people. God does not have the same criteria that people have. God's acceptance of us is based on his love. He seeks you even when you've sinned. God sought Adam and Eve when he knew that they had sinned. God desires to accept and receive and respond to us in grace. This is reflected in three stories told by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost sheep, 
the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son. In the story of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and searches for the lost one. When he finds his lost sheep, the Bible says that he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. That's Luke 15 verses 6 and 7. One out of a hundred sheep. I can afford to lose one sheep, but this was not the attitude of the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd reflects the heart and the attitude of God the Father towards the lost, towards those that are separated from him. He longs to have a restored relationship with those that have sinned. He longs to find the lost and separated sheep from the 99. He longs to find the lost sheep. Look at the story of the lost coin. The woman searches carefully and diligently for the lost coin and rejoices with her friends when she finds it. Again, this reflects the attitude of God, the heart of God towards those that are separated from him. The conclusion of this story, likewise I say to you, there will be joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's Luke 15 and verse 10. Now look at the story of the lost son, also known as the prodigal son. The son asked for his inheritance early, even before his father died. This is highly unusual for a young son to be allowed to spend the inheritance before the father's death. However, the father granted it. The son probably converted all of his goods into money and then headed for a far country. The young son engaged in a reckless lifestyle, including sexual promiscuity and squandering his entire inheritance. The Bible tells us that a famine came to the land, and to avoid starvation in the time of famine, the son went to work for a Gentile, raising and caring for pigs. This was a Jewish boy. This, of course, reveals his utter degradation. The Bible tells us that this boy came to himself in verse 17 and decided to go back to his father and repent of his wrongdoing, asking the father to hire him as a servant. An ordinary servant was considered part of the family, but a hired servant or a day laborer could be dismissed at any time. He was not considered a family member. He was not owned by the slave master. As he traveled back to his home, he probably practiced his speech over and over again. Look at the actions and attitudes of the father when the son returned home. The father was looking for his son to return. Luke 15 and verse 20. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. The father showed immediate acceptance and love. Luke 15 verse 20. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Look at the verbs in that verse. He saw, he ran, he fell, he kissed. This shows us the father's acceptance and love of his son. 
the father restored his son to full family membership. Luke 15 verses 22 and 23. For the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. So what did the father do? He put a robe and sandals on his son. This would distinguish his son from the other servants. He put a ring on his finger. That ring would be a signet ring that would give the son access to the family's wealth. Today's equivalent would be like giving his son the family business credit card. And then he threw a party to celebrate his son's return to the family. Jesus told these stories in Luke chapter 15 to illustrate God's attitude towards those that would turn to the Father in repentance. God the Father longs for us to be reconciled to him, to restore that broken relationship with him. Why did God seek for Adam and Eve? He knew that they had sinned, but he wanted them to take the initiative to confess their wrong, to confess their sin. God can't repent for us. We have to repent on our own. We doubt that God will accept us. And this prevents us from turning to God, from turning to him in repentance. Satan will attempt to paint a picture of God who is moody, angry and hard to please. God is not like the fickle people around us. One day they're for us, the next day they're against us. God wants to have a relationship with us. When things get in the way of that relationship, we need to deal with those things by making right our relationship with God, turning to God in repentance and confessing our sin. God accepts us based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Father accepts Jesus and the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, he will accept those that are in Christ. As we turn to Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and embrace Jesus and ask him to forgive us of our sins, the Father accepts us and receives us. It is during times of disappointment and discouragement that Satan comes to us with words of doubt. He tries to get us to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness, and to doubt God's acceptance of us. Those who are discouraged by these doubts become vulnerable to Satan. For the Christian, they become vulnerable to Satan as they become discouraged and begin to believe these lies. Know this, that God's word is trustworthy, that God is good, and that God accepts us based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If we doubt these things, then we become vulnerable to Satan. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And that hope is realized and activated as we turn to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Mm -hmm.